Good evening. Our lecture next Monday night is Thomas Berger of St. Lawrence University speaking on two-letter words in Shakespeare's Henry V. <laughs> and two weeks from tonight, again Monday at 6, Alexander Wilson, the Director General of the British Library Reference Division, speaking on Towards an Ideal Library of Rare Books. And our speaker this evening is Mr. Anthony Hobson, talking on appropriations from foreign libraries during the French Revolution and Empire. It's a great, it's a great pleasure indeed to have him here at Columbia. Mr. Hobson. Ladies and gentlemen, Forsenius remarked that the annexation of works of art in conquered countries, even statues of gods in temples, was as old as history. And this observation was strikingly confirmed when the French archaeologists excavating the Elamite capital of Susa discovered the stele of the laws of Hammurabi, which the Elamites had removed after conquering Babylon in 1160 BC. However, it was the Romans who were the great looters of the ancient world. They stripped the Greek cities of Sicily, then Greece itself, of works of art. Rome's first public art gallery was established by Quintus Sicilius Metellus with some of the spoils of his governorship of Macedonia, not the last national collection to benefit from officially organized looting. Books, however, did not much tempt the Roman proconsuls. Sola, it is true, transported to Rome Aristotle's archive of his own manuscripts, together with those of Theophrastus, but only following the death of Therona. And after the Third Macedonian War, Emilius Paulus, praised by Plutarch for his benevolent treatment of the conquered inhabitants, allowed his sons to choose books from the library of the defeated King Perseus. A single work on agriculture, however, was all that was taken from the library at Carthage. African princes were given the other manuscripts, no doubt considered too barbarous for civilized perusal. The first instance of book annexation in modern times, what one may call modern times, is perhaps the sixth century manuscript of Justinian's Pandects, which the Florentines took as war booty from Pisa in 1406. The codex was preserved like a holy relic in a darkened room in the Palazzo Vecchio with candles burning before it. Uh, the great Dutch jurist, Hugo Grotius, laid down the legal position in his De Jure Belli et Pacis of 1625. Any state waging a just war, defined as a war of self-defense or to recover territory or property justly owned, had the right to attach enemy belongings. Movable effects became the property of the visitors when transferred to their sovereign territory, but must pass into public ownership. Few states, however, applied these principles in their full rigor. The need was usually felt for some special justification. This might take the form of dynastic claims, as when the French carried off the Aragonese Library from Naples and the Visconti Library from Pavia. 
or conquerors might consider themselves entitled as representatives of the more virile nation to plunder the artifacts of a decadent opponent like the Romans in Greece. At other times, the justification has been the victor's superior culture. Numerous objects from Asia and Africa, including statues of gods from temples, can be seen in Western museums as a consequence of this attitude. Among literary works, I need only remind you of the Rosetta Stone and the Emperor Theodore's manuscripts from Magdala in the British Museum. Intense ideological conflict has always seemed to the contestants to justify high-minded plunder. During the Thirty Years' War, Pope Gregory XV accepted the gift of the Elector Palatine's library from Heidelberg, thus preventing Protestant controversialists from having access to its early manuscripts. In return, the Protestant Swedes appropriated Catholic libraries in Germany, Bohemia and Poland. Revolutionary regimes are particularly prone to regard their superior virtue as sufficient justification in itself. It wasn't until after the Second World War that the Soviet government controlled any foreign territory for long enough to apply the principle. Then in 1945, they removed large numbers of valuable works of art and books from East Germany. Time passed. The East German government itself became communist. On second thoughts, the wisdom of the removals appeared less certain, and the objects were quietly returned. But a cache of musical manuscripts from Berlin remains in Poland, still unrestored, though its existence has been acknowledged. During the long ideological lull that preceded the French Revolution, when most European thrones were occupied by enlightened autocrats, and there were, gr there were grounds for hope that the world might really be ruled by reason, the plunder of works of art came to be considered a barbarous anachronism. I know only one exception to Trevor Roper's dictum that princes and generals no longer looted each other's palaces or stole each other's property, namely the French removal from Brussels in 1746 of 188 illuminated manuscripts of the Burgundian Library. Eighty of the manuscripts, a majority that is, of those that had entered the Royal Library, since forty had found their way into the private collection of the Ministry of War, were given back in 1770. This precedent was not lost on the French commissioners when the revolutionary armies invaded the southern Netherlands. Announcing the arrival in Paris in 1794 of 22 cases of books and five carriage loads of scientific instruments from Belgium, Grégoire, a member of the Comité d'Instruction Publique, reported to the convention, they include the manuscripts removed from Brussels during the War of 1742 and returned by express stipulation of the Peace Treaty of 1769. The Republic has acquired by its courage what Louis XIV could never obtain, even at the cost of vast expense. This was the justification after the event. The same committee had been decidedly shamefaced when the idea was first put forward. Their proposal that envoys should follow the armies advancing through Belgium to remove masterpieces from the conquered areas had stipulated that the operation should be carried out in secrecy. 
French apologists for the policy of artistic and literary reparations either stressed the ancient Roman precedent, a powerful argument at a time when Republican virtues were esteemed above all others, or they developed a theory based on certain passages in Winkelmann that the fine arts could only flourish in a free country. Literature and the arts are the friends of liberty, the president of the Comité d'Instruction Publique wrote to the Committee of Public Safety in 1794. The monuments which slaves have erected for our enemies will acquire in our midst that glory which a despotic government can never confer on them. A consistent policy, that of making Paris the cultural capital of Europe, underlay these rhetorical phrases. Spanish literature contains works which deserve to be known, the Commission Temporaire des Arts reported when an invasion of Spain was in prospect. <laughs> and in general, French libraries possess few Spanish books. It is perhaps a way of perpetuating our victories to Europeanize our libraries, to make them talk all languages. This was a policy capable, at least at the outset, of winning support even from foreign savants, who realized that books and manuscripts would be more accessible in the Bibliothèque Nationale, by then open to readers for four hours daily, than in monasteries or churches, or in the Vatican Library, which was virtually closed to readers under the curatorship of the unspeakable Monsignor Reggie. The obligation laid on the Pope by the armistice terms of 1796 to surrender 500 books or manuscripts was welcomed by at least two northern scholars of eminence. Bartolt Georg Niebuhr, the future historian of Rome and discoverer of the institutions of Gaius, and Professor Friedrich Münter of Copenhagen, an authority on comparative religion. Both submitted lists of manuscripts to be claimed. Niebuhr's was principally of Greek authors with an emphasis on the tragedians. Münter's was more original and wide-ranging. He hoped for discoveries in northern history and literature, the Elder Edda, the Diary of St. Ansgar, the Apostle of the North, a ninth-century collection of German bardic songs, as well as an Arabic version of the Gospel Harmony of Tatian and documents relating to the history of the Knights Templar. Other countries were quick to follow the French example. Russia took the Zalewski Library from Warsaw. The Austrians secured a group of incunabula on vellum from Venice. The official history of the Bibliotheca Marciana and that of the Österreichische Nationalbibliothek give very different accounts of that incident. <laughs> While in 1809 the Vienna Library was obliged in its turn to hand over manuscripts to the Bavarians. The French operations, however, were unparalleled in scope and scale. Outside the British Isles and Scandinavia, most institutional libraries in Western Europe were affected to a greater or less extent. Beside the official confiscations, much private looting went on, and there were endless smaller acts of interference, especially in territories annexed by France. Two books were taken from Cesena, 52 from the Albani Palace in Urbino, five cases from the Dominican and Capuchin convents in the little town of Incali, were handed over to a certain Abate Romani 
for use in his school, and so on. Such incidents were commonplace. The most drastic alteration proposed, however, was frustrated by Allied victories. This was the plan to suppress the Herzog August Bibliothek at Wolfenbüttel altogether and to transfer its holdings to Göttingen. It will be convenient to consider the process in five separate periods corresponding to different campaigns. The campaign in the Netherlands and Rhineland of 1794-5, the first Italian campaign, the com campaign in South Germany and Austria of 1800 to 1801, the campaigns in North Germany and Austria of 1867, and the process of centralization exemplified by the Montgerard mission. Each had its own protagonist, and the degree of political restraint varied, the, con the convention and the directoire being much more committed to the policy of seizure than Napoleon, either as first consul or emperor. As early as October 1792, it occurred to the foreign minister of the day, Lebrun, in a letter instructing General Custine to treat the population of the Rhineland with fraternity, to add, perhaps an example of fraternal behavior, I think, I think it would be good for you to profit from the circumstances to enrich the Bibliothèque Nationale with many good and precious works which there must be in the libraries of the towns you will have conquered for liberty. <laughs> Nothing much came of this initiative at the time, as no organization was set up to implement it, though Custine was later accused of taking the 1457 Psalter and the 1462 Bible from Mainz University Library, both books not no longer traced into Rich's census. Two years later, a fresh opportunity presented itself. On June the 26th, 1794, the day the Battle of Fleurus opened the southern Netherlands to the French invading forces, the first proposal was made by the Comité d'Instruction Publique to send artists and writers into the occupied territories. Four commissioners were chosen. An architect, Charles de Vailly, Fougère de Saint-Fond, a geologist, André Touin, a botanist, and the librarian of the Bibliothèque des Quatre, des Quatre Nations, as the Bibliothèque Mazarine was then called, a former priest, Michel Leblanc. The commissioners lost no time. On August the 21st, Leblanc reported that he had visited eight libraries and selected 8,000 books, of which 5,000 had already been packed and dispatched. Among them were 929 manuscripts of the Burgundian Library, and 621 from other sources. Other books had come from the Archiepiscopal Seminary at Malines, the abbeys of Dilligum, Grimbergen, and Afflingham, and the private collection of Count Lanois, presumably an émigré. On September the 27th, the commissioners set out for Liège, pausing to make selections in Louvain, both from the university and the Augustinian convent, Tirlemont, and Saint-Tron. The debris of the libraries at Stavlo and Malmedy yielded books enough to fill only one case, and in Liège itself they were disappointed to find that the town library had been evacuated to Maastricht. The next objective was what they called the Promised Land of Holland, 
a new Potosi. In Maastricht, Leblanc had the satisfaction of finding and confiscating the entire town library of Liège, together with the books of the English Jesuits from the same town. But further action in Holland was barred by the armistice, and the commissioners had to content themselves with sending the most valuable works from the Stadthouders Library to Paris. They then proceeded to the Rhineland. In Cologne, they brushed aside the protests of the town council, who pointed out that the former Jesuit collection had become the city's public library, and spent some weeks combing its contents before dispatching 19 cases of manuscripts and incunabula to Paris, besides 215 portfolios of prints, drawings, antiquities, natural history specimens, and the Rubens painting of St. Peter, which the artist had given to the Cologne church of that name. Leblanc continued by himself to Koblenz. Although ostracized by the inhabitants, he succeeded in identifying several convents by their bells. These yielded a meager contribution of 300 volumes, and he was about to leave an odious town, as he called it, when someone mentioned the existence of a Jesuit house. He had himself guided there, found the library already packed for evacuation east of the Rhine, opened two cases at random, liked what he saw, and appropriated the whole collection. Transport costs nothing, or almost nothing, he observed, and then it would have taken too much time and expense to make a choice. <laughs> in Belgium, the situation had changed in the commissioner's absence. A newly installed central administration objected to further exactions. They complained about the haphazard methods of confiscation. Lists had not been made, nor receipts given. Books had been taken which were far from rare in France, such as the Mozarabic Missal of 1500, the Complutensian Polyglot, and Gori's ten-volume Museum Florentinum of 1731-62. The commissioners were obliged to suspend operations and return to Paris. Altogether, they had dispatched 264 cases of books, 240 charters and papal bulls from Belgian religious houses, and the mahogany library furniture of the Elector of Cologne. Apart from the manuscripts from Brussels, the choice had mainly been of modern works on science, medicine, and travel, maps and atlases, and illustrated books on natural history, architecture, and the applied arts. Many of the books were distributed to provincial libraries. Leblanc obtained a selection for his own institution, and a hundred volumes of mathematics and military science went to the École Polytechnique. Leblanc claimed that he had not neglected works illustrating the history of typography. Among the titles he quotes are what is described as a superb copy of the 1462 Bible on vellum, not now to be identified in de Rich's census, and Aeneas Silvius de Duobus Amantibus, described as of 1443. Probably, since it was a folio, the unsigned edition printed in Cologne circa, 17, circa 1473 to 74. Neither these nor the other instances cited inspire much faith in his bibliographical knowledge. 
books have been removed from the Low Countries and the, and the Rhineland without ceremony as spoils of war. During Napoleon's first Italian campaign of 1796-97, a different situation obtained. The number of manuscripts each state was to give up was written into the armistice terms. The Duke of Modena had to surrender 70. The Venetian Republic and the Papacy were each assessed at 500. From towns in Lombardy, the Veneto and the Papal States not covered by an armistice, the exactions were arbitrary, as in Belgium. In Milan, the Ambrosiana lost 18 manuscripts and the Brera 133 printed books. 119 printed books were taken from Pavia and smaller numbers from the Capitula Library of Verona and from Mantua. Bologna lost 506 manuscripts and 94 in Cunabula. The Cathedral of Monza was mulcted of 149 manuscripts, 120, 121 printed books, including 85 in Cunabula, four gold or ivory book covers, two triptychs, the crowns of King Agilulf and Queen Theodolenda, and a sapphire vase. But the commissioners thought it prudent to conciliate local opinion by leaving the Iron Crown of Lombardy. The Directoire had named six commissioners to accompany the army. The scientist, mathematician, and founder of the École Polytechnique, Gaspard Monge, a chemist, two botanists, a sculptor, and an artist, Barthelmy. No librarian had been included, and the task of choosing books and manuscripts fell to Morge. The commissioners did not reach Milan until June the, June the 7th, 1796, when the French army was already about to enter Bologna. In the meantime, Napoleon had nominated an artist named Tinet, who was on the spot, as commissioner ad interim. Tinet proved a bibliographical lightweight. He removed some of the Ambrosiana's best-known showpieces, including 13 notebooks of Leonardo, but overlooked the many important manuscripts listed by Montfaucon. The more thorough, though wholly indiscriminate, work of spoliation at Monza was done by two minor functionaries named Voiron and Repero. Mon Monge arrived in time to handle the selection in Bologna, Venice, and Rome. In the 18th century, the Vatican Library was both the richest collection in early classical manuscripts and one of the least accessible. Interest in the French selection was intense. The curators of the Bibliothèque Nationale who had been consulted at first favored taking the most celebrated pieces, in other words, the volumes normally shown to tourists. They were won over by the keeper of Greek and Latin manuscripts, La Porte who argued that they should restrict themselves to taking all Queen Christina's collection, the Reginenses, most of which were French and had been bought from the Peto brothers. In this way, they would acquire a coherent collection instead of an array of isolated high spots. Monge seems to have paid more attention to Niebuhr's and Münter's lists than to the curator's suggestion. Inevitably, he committed a few howlers. The worst was his failure to take the 11th century Palatine manuscript 
containing a unique and unpublished recension of the Greek anthology, which northern scholars had been clamoring for sight of since Claude de Somes had first discovered it at Heidelberg in 1607. In 1798, following the assassination of General Dufour, a French army again marched on Rome and the omissions could be repaired. Morge returned with three other commissioners to draw up the constitution of a Roman Republic. One of his companions, PCF Donou, an ex-auditorian and former Girondin deputy, was librarian of the Bibliothèque du Pantheon, the present Bibliothèque Saint-Genevieve, and an experienced bibliographer. The directoire had ordered the Pope's private library and the Albani family collections to be confiscated. The former, no doubt, as a reprisal for Dufour's death, the latter because Cardinal Gianfrancesco Albani had succeeded his uncle as protector of English interests at the papal court. Pius VI's magnificent library, with its wealth of incunabular editions, had been formed, in accordance with contemporary custom, we are told, from the duplicates of the Vatican Library. Donau managed to delay its sale and with the help of lists supplied by Van Praat to select about 80 manuscripts and a much larger number of incunabula for dispatch to Paris, where they were divided between the Bibliothèque Nationale and his own library. The Bibliothèque Saint-Geneviève appears to owe its 32 editions of Sweinheim and Panards, starting with the Subiaco, Lactantius and Cicero, and its 500 other Italian incunabula to this initiative. The remains of the Pope's library were sold to two Roman booksellers, the brothers Barbiellini, for 11,000 scudi, a price said to be below the cost of the bindings. The great Albani library, founded by Pope Clement XI, was dispersed, but Donu secured a quantity of Neo-Latin verse, mostly by Jesuit authors, for the Bibliothèque du Pantheon, besides sending a hundred architectural books chosen from Pius VI and the Albani collections to the École Polytechnique. This time, the commissioners had been provided with a list of 193 15th and 16th century printed books and one later work, Cristóbal de Acuña's Nuevo Descubrimiento del Gran Rio de las Amazones, Madrid, 1641, all of which were lacking in the Bibliothèque Nacional. The list had been compiled by Van Praat, the keeper of printed books. The commissioners succeeded in finding 165 of the desideratum in the Vatican and other ecclesiastical libraries. The chief absentee was the Editio Princeps of Perseus, Rome, Ulrich Hahn, circa 1470, which the monks of Santa Maria del Popolo had sold three years earlier to an English dealer. I imagine it is the Spencer copy, now rebound by Roger Payne and at, in the John Rylands Library in Manchester. In place of the missing books, the commissioners sent copies from Pius VI Library, valuable, though not particularly rare books, like the 1494 Greek anthology on vellum, the Codex Vaticanus of the Septuagint, the 5th century Codex Romanus of Virgil, the Palatine Anthology, 
Winkelmann's manuscripts in 28 volumes, and the Oriental punches and type of the College of Propaganda. The different consignments reached Paris in time to be paraded round the Champ de Mars on the anniversary of Robespierre's fall, July the 27th, 1798. Escorted by the professors of the Collège de France, the teaching staff and pupils of the École Polytechnique, the curators of the Paris libraries, and delegations of students, printers, and booksellers. Ostriches, camels, and gazelles, which happened to have arrived on a convoy from North Africa at the same time, took part in the procession. <laughs> in 1810, just to go on with Italy now, in 1810, Napoleon ordered the removal to France of the papal archives. This vast undertaking, involving the movement of 450 vehicles divided into 20 convoys, was brilliantly organized by Donu, by this time Archivist General of the Empire, and carried out without loss. The archives, originally intended to be installed next to the papal court in Reims, were instead diverted to Paris to be housed in the Hotel Soubise, the, which now houses the French Archive National. Florence had already lost the Codex Mediceus of Virgil. In 1811, it had to surrender the oriental punches, matrices, and type of the Medici press, which had been used to print the Arabic Gospels of 1590 to 91. They were transported to Paris, where the Arabic punches are still to be found in the Imprimerie Nationale. What had started as a government policy designed to benefit French industry and agriculture and to establish Paris as the cultural center of Europe, developed into a personal crusade by two men. Vivant Denon, director of the National Museum, and Van Praat, keeper of printed books in the Bibliothèque Nationale, were the dominant figures in the later episodes. Jean-Basile Bernard Van Praat was born in Bruges in 1754 the son of a printer and bookseller. As a schoolboy of 15, he is said to have spent all his savings on buying a copy of the Gagnard sale catalogue. After an apprenticeship in his father's bookshop, he went to Paris to work, first for Dessin, a bookseller, then for the great Guillaume de Burlene, with whom he collaborated in compiling the catalogue of the La Vallière sale. He was appointed premier écrivain to the Bibliothèque Royale in 1784 and rose by regular stages to become joint keeper of printed books ten years later. His career was dedicated to augmenting the collections in his charge. In 1800, a new commissioner for science and the arts was attached to General Moro's army in South Germany. He was François-Marie Neveu, an artist and lecturer at the École Polytechnique. His powers were strictly limited. Moreau ordered him to proceed with prudence and precaution. And the Minister of the Interior, Lucien Bonaparte, wanted his mission to be primarily philosophical and philanthropic. How he came to be chosen is uncertain. He does not seem to have had the toughness of character which the job demanded. 
A Bavarian museum director described him as an elegant citizen in a blonde wig. <laughs> Never took 16 manuscripts and an unknown number of printed books from Munich, while various libraries in Salzburg yielded 70, 76 manuscripts and 55 in Cunabula. In Nuremberg, however, he suffered a setback. He presented a list of 15 Cunabula, no doubt prepared by van Praat. The great prize was one of the three known copies of Turi Cremata, Meditationes, Rome, Ulrichan, 1467, the earliest Italian book with woodcuts, in exchange for which van Praat was ready to offer the 1462 Bible on vellum, perhaps the copy sent back from Belgium by Leblanc, or other books to a value of 2,000 francs. Nuremberg, however, having remained neutral in the war, was at peace with France and would not be coerced. Nerveux was obliged to accept the city father's offer of 12 incunabula, which did not include the Torre Cremata. Van Praat secured the Vienna copy in 1809, but had to give it up in 1814. The victories of Jena and Auerstadt in 186 opened the libraries of northern Germany to the French. Three years later, Vienna was again occupied. Vivant Denon accompanied the armies on both occasions. In one action, Napoleon had to order him out of the line of fire and carried out, and carried out the confiscations in person. Wolfenbüttel was the chief sufferer. The Herzog August Bibliothek lost 193 Western manuscripts chosen by La Porte du Thé from the manuscript library catalogue which Denon had sent to Paris. 51 Arabic and Turkish manuscripts chosen by Louis Mathieu Langlais, keeper of Oriental manuscripts in the Bibliothèque Nationale, and about 116 Cunabula, no doubt selected by Van Praat. The last category included 13 books printed on vellum, the Harleian copy of the 36-line Bible in 18th century Russia, and the unique copy of the first edition of Ulrich Borner's Der Edelstein, printed by Pfister at Bamberg in 1461. Prussia was savagely plundered of works of art, but only three books, all annotated by Voltaire, were taken from Potsdam, and ten manuscripts and an Indian fetish from the Baltic port of Elbing. The Austrians had prudently evacuated the most valuable books and manuscripts of the Imperial Library to Hungary, among them the Vienna Genesis, the Dioscorides, the Mexican Picture Manuscript, and the Wenceslas Bible. The selection of reparations from the remainder led to a prolonged wrangle. Denon at first pitched his demands very high. He even claimed volumes that did not belong to the library, but were there on approval from the Mannheim bookseller Artaria. The prefect appealed to Napoleon, and eventually a compromise was reached. 571 manuscripts, 225 incunabula and later printed books, and 20 volumes of engravings. Napoleon had laid down the principle that the Bibliothèque Nationale should own one copy of every printed book. It was politically not advisable to take too much from foreign countries, 
and the main weight of the exactions fell on the towns incorporated into France. The strangest incident in the exploitation of their libraries was what I call the Maugerard mission. Jean-Baptiste Maugerard, born in 1735, had been a monk of the Benedictine Abbey of Saint Arnoux at Metz, and then for 10 years from 1792, an émigré in Germany. By talent and inclination, however, he was an astute and knowledgeable dealer in rare books. He specialized in obtaining important early printed books from German monasteries for resale to private clients. Before the revolution, to a Metz collector, Dupré de Jeuneste, to Cardinal Lomini de Brienne, and Cardinal de Montmorency Laval, Bishop of Metz. After the revolution, to Duke Ernest II of Sachsen-Gotha. Van Praat had first met Montgerard in Cardinal Lomini de Brienne's house in 1788, and it was on his recommendation that Montgerard was recalled to France in 1802 and offered an appointment as government commissioner. His duties were to collect books and manuscripts for the Bibliothèque Nationale in the four newly constituted French departments on the left bank of the Rhine. He held the appointment for three and a half years, retiring in his 71st year in January 1806. How many books, manuscripts, charters and other documents he forwarded to Paris cannot now be determined. But although all were supposed to have been returned in 1815, the Bibliothèque Nationale still possesses 281 manuscripts derived from the Cabinet Maugerard. Several famous pieces passed through his hands. 84 manuscripts from Echternach, including the 8th century in Insula Evangeliary of Villebroad, the Arda Gospels from Trier, and the Codex Aureus from Prüm, a gift from the Emperor Lothar in the year 852. As the late A.N.L. Munby observed, it is hard to reconcile the picture of a disinterested scholar painted by Maugerard's French biographers with the unscrupulous book thief of German accounts. Letters in the Bibliothèque Nationale from James Payne, the English bookseller, and from Maugerard himself, however, prompt certain conclusions. Already in his émigré years, Maugerard was closely linked with Van Praat. On September the 28th, 1800, Payne wrote from Vienna to the keeper of printed books. I had some dealings with your friend Maugerard and found him very dear, but thanks for your advice as I made him reduce his prices. Maugerard has got the St. Augustine de Arte Predicandi by Mintel and a Rostock Lactentius, which I should like to have, but he asked such extravagant prices that I was obliged to leave them. I should like to have the first particularly and would be thankful if you will procure them of him for me, which I am sure you will accomplish, and on more moderate terms than I could. Whatever you give for them, I will cheerfully agree to. Maugerard continued to deal on his own account, even while holding the government appointment. In January 1803, he bought two leaves of the 25-line Donatus from the Trier librarian Wittenbach, whose reluctance to sell the ex-Benedictine had crushed with an enormous meal. 
<laughs> they were sold for 148 francs to the Bibliothèque Nationale. In 1805, Mougerard tried unsuccessfully to purchase Pfister's Four Histories, 1462, and Biblia Parforum, bound together, a volume later acquired by Payne for Lord Spencer. On occasions, Van Praat himself was not above dealing. A vellum copy of the Genoese polyglot Psalter of 1516, sent to him by Mogerard from Metz in 182, apparently at an asking price of 500 francs, but not paid for until the owner visited Paris three years later, turns up in 1822 in the stock of de Bure, Van Praat's former employers. The impression is of a partnership with a good deal of sharpness on both sides. Instead of sending the Lach Sacramentary to Paris with other manuscripts from the Abbey, Mogerard sold it to another Wheeler dealer, the self-styled Baron Hübsch. Van Prater emerges as a more worldly and unscrupulous figure than the benign antiquary described by Dibdin and by his French and Belgian obituarists. He was evidently on intimate terms with James Penn. You are now, Payne wrote to him after a visit to Paris in 1800, you are now perhaps without a rival, as probably Mr. Kimball has left Paris ere this, auprès de Aloise. Who Aloise was, I don't know, but I suppose is her, she, her, what was then called her virtue was not impregnable. What a happy man, the letter goes on. I can sell myself for the Swineheim and Panarts on vellum. The criteria of choice in the various campaigns varied according to the tastes of the different commissioners. Leblanc chose useful books in the spirit of the Enlightenment. Morge's selection might have been made by a modern university librarian. It was for books with potential for research. He took from the Vatican, for instance, an annotated copy in five volumes of the 1494 Greek anthology and six copies, all annotated, of the 1503 edition. Three of the Vatican's early Virgils were selected, but the Carolingian manuscript of Terence was confused with the late classical copy of the same text. Italian literature was well represented. He took several manuscripts of Dante, Petrarch and Boccaccio, as well as autograph poems of Sanazzaro and Michelangelo. The Directoire also asked for a representative selection of modern Italian works. Duplicates were sometimes chosen of the same book. Although the Bibliothèque Nationale already owned Henri Deux's copy on vellum of the Aldine Aristotle, a second copy was taken from the Vatican and a third from Venice. With Van Praat, the standards of La Haute Bibliophilie, learned in de Bure's shop, prevailed. In a note attached to La Porte du Thuy's memorandum, he urged the commissioners in Rome to send back a missal with miniatures by Giulio Clovio and another with paintings by Giulio Romano. I doubt whether he had any particular manuscripts in mind. The request merely voiced a characteristic 18th century taste for late illumination. Moore had taken Aldine's from Venice and Verona and 50 volumes of music from Venice. But Van Praat hardly ever chose a book printed after 1500 unless it was on vellum. 
His knowledge of incunabula was encyclopedic, derived, apart from some original research on Collard Mansion, from Panza, Audi Fredi, and the numerous other published sources that were already available. It was noticeable that libraries with published catalogues, Vienna, Venice, Turin, Monza, fared far worse than those without, a, a lesson that many later custodians seem to have taken to heart. <laughs> the Wolfenbüttel librarian cursed the, fat the fatal Heineken, whose Nachrichten von Künstlern und Kunstsachen and Idee Générale d'une Collection Complète d'Estampes had revealed the treasures of the Herzog August Bibliothek. Influence of Langlais. Of the 500 manuscripts taken from the Vatican, 190 were Oriental. In Vienna, all the Oriental manuscripts were demanded and all books printed in Constantinople. Finally, a tendency may be noted to choose works for their anti-clerical re relevance. Martinus Polonus's Chronicle, because it contained the life of Pope Joan, and the anonymous Processus Satanae, or Tractatus Procuratoris Diaboli, a 1475, described as the official defending counsel of those accused by the Inquisition. With the defeat of Napoleon, the process of concentrating European art and literature in Paris had to be put into reverse. Austria and Prussia persuaded Louis XVIII to return their property in 1814. The other powers had to wait until after Waterloo. Even then, some manuscripts, such as those from Echternach, were never claimed, and books sent to libraries other than the Bibliothèque Nationale proved impossible to recover. There were several anomalies. A 9th century astronomical miscellany from Verona was returned to Monza. The manuscripts and documents collected by Mogerard in the Rhineland mostly went to Berlin. The manuscripts from Salzburg were claimed, from the, were claimed by the Bavarians and are still in Munich. The Pope agreed to give two volumes of Provençal poetry from Fulvio Orsini's collection to the Bibliothèque Nationale and to return the Palatine Anthology and the German manuscripts of the Palatine Library to Heidelberg. But Marino Marini, the papal commissioner, skillfully evaded pressing demands from the curators of manuscripts to leave one of the early Virgils and the 9th century Terence in Paris. The chief losses were among the archives from Rome. When a French army was approaching the city in 1798, the Inquisition had thought it prudent to destroy all records of its cases for the previous 40 years, as well as some celebrated proceedings of earlier periods, such as that of the Spanish quietist Miguel de Molinos. In 1815, Marino Marini, who had been given virtually no money for transport, agreed with Cardinal Consalvi that the remaining papers of the Inquisition were valueless and could be destroyed. They were torn into small pieces, soaked in water, and sold to a paper manufacturer. Marini watched while they were reduced to paste in his vats. The trial of Galileo, which the French had failed to give back, was the only survivor. One of the ministers of Louis XVIII had quietly appropriated it. After his death, 
his widow discovered it among his papers and returned it to the Pope. While the curators of manuscripts collaborated, however unwillingly, with the Allied commissioners, von Prat was determined to cheat them. All the captured in Cunabula had been uniformly rebound in red Morocco by Beauzerion, so destroying much evidence of earlier ownership. In 1814, when it was clear that defeat was inevitable, Van Praat, with the assistance of a future keeper of printed books in the library, Charles Magnin, worked out of hours for more than a month to transfer the most valuable books to an inaccessible hiding place. He met the Allied claims either by pretending that the books could not be found or by supplying inferior substitutes. The modern library recovered only one of the 24 incunabula it had lost in 1796. Defective copies or later editions were sent back in place of the others. The best known feat of chicanery was the substitution of an imperfect copy of the 36-line Bible for the complete Harleian copy from Wolfenbüttel. Although some years later, Van Prout still bemoaned Dibdin the loss of Boner's Der Edelstein, he succeeded in saving the major part of the collection he had formed. The late uh, E.P. Goldschmidt used to say that every good book had been stolen at least twice. <laughs> One of those times is very likely to have been during that period of ferment between 1794 and 1815. Thank you.